Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. I'm here with our host, Keith Figlioli of LRV Health. Keith, happy March to you. It is a happy March. I can't say I had a great morning though. I, I just came from the dental office and finished, finishing off the second half of a root canal procedure. So it was a good time this morning. Yikes. Uh, a colleague of mine just got a crown on Monday and she required four shots of Novocaine. It is quite the laborious process that they don't tell you in the beginning of these things if you've never had one. It involves many, many hours in the dental chair, so it's a good time. I've never had, but I'll share. I've got a my lower canine is still a baby tooth. My full one never came in, so and I'm losing that. 52 years is a good run for a baby tooth, and I'm going to need to uh, I'm going to need to get some Invisalign to to close that gap. So I'm bracing myself for some braces. The subtleties of dental issues for middle age middle aged men is exciting. I thought I had cleared that hurdle, but uh, keep keep pulling us back in. So, well, enough about that. Let's uh, talk about your your outstanding guest of the day. You spoke with uh, Mona Siddiqui. She is uh, best known, I think, as uh, her role at HHS, which you can talk about in a moment. But now she now she is and has been for the last couple of years senior vice president of enterprise clinical strategy and quality at Humana. So, my first question to you, Keith, is. What is Humana? Because we know it as, a, as an insurer, but uh, it's actually much, much more, right? And I was joking with her during the interview about this because I think Humana is doing a really good job of trying to change the perception of it being a payer or a management government payer, if you will, with a lot of what they do around MA. You know, she brought it up and, I, and, and I've heard it a bunch lately, which is this idea that Humana wants to be thought of as a healthcare company, which, you know, when you start thinking about the various shades of uh, re-envisioning a provider, re-envisioning a payer, and the combination of those two kind of a payvider, you know, they kind of squarely sit in that payvider category where they're, you know, not only I bring this up a couple of times, you know, not only thinking about and doing taking on financial risk, but they're also taking on clinical delivery risk. And they're doing that a couple of different ways. Obviously, they had the kindred transaction and they have other delivery arm ownership models, but then they also have a lot of partnerships. So I think they have a partnership with Oak Street on the um, primary care front with what Oak Street's doing. And so they're clearly trying to think of themselves much broader than just, hey, we're one of the, the largest MA managed care organizations, if you will, across this country or managed payer organizations across this country. So it was a really interesting sketch. And, and I've known, you know, it's funny, like a lot of our guests, I've known Mona for a long time, but we've never kind of like sat down and had a really long chat. We always like always run into each other at various event receptions when we used to do those event things. You know, I, it feels like I hear they're coming back by the way, but this is the first time, like, you know, we sat down for a good 40 minutes and really kind of hashed out her background and her interests. And, and, and I learned a lot about her, which was great. And I don't think I realized until I started doing more research for this interview that, that she literally was the first chief date data officer for HHS. And that must have been a really interesting role to try to create that was coming on the heels of Todd Park and that whole crew that was was in the early part of Obama administration, sort of trying to unlock all the data. And then she probably got handed a lot of the keys and said, okay, now go do something with it. And so she talked a lot about some of the success and some of the follies that she had during those roles. So I, it was a really interesting discussion. No, it was great to have. I mean, she was always a favorite at conferences because uh, you very rarely got someone from government who could 
speak at a conference and really, I think, engage the audience as well as she could. So uh, it's our nation's loss that she's at Humana, but uh, sounds like she's doing so, some very interesting work there. You used the term payvider. Is that's not a that's not a Keith Figlioli trademark, right? I, I hadn't heard that before, so that's out there. It's like a term that I think comes and goes depending on the you know what people are talking about in sort of the ecosystem. And what I mean by that is, you know, the context is that. Like I said, you you can be a payer and own the financial risk, but then you can also be a provider and own the clinical delivery risk. And it's really the combination of those two things. And I think in the market, it comes together a couple of different ways. Sometimes people fully own the whole thing. So think of like the Kaiser model, where they're owning both sides of that equation. And then you can think of other times where people are partnering. So, you know, the example that comes to my mind is, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Minnesota, and Alina the health system have come together to create sort of a payvider partnership construct where Alina owns a clinical risk, delivery risk, and you know Blue Cross really is a partner with them on owning the financial risk. And so the combination of those two things really, somebody fancily came up with the word, you know, pay and vider. And I think it sticks occasionally, depending on who you're talking to. Some people like the term, some people don't, but I think it really does equate to sort of what a, a new age healthcare company could be. That's great. This is why I love podcasts. I learned so much. Now let's talk a bit about what Mona Siddiqui will be doing at Humana. You t- she did the work at HHS, which was, was daunting. What, what are her challenges or, or what are her opportunities here at Humana? Yeah, it's interesting. And I didn't know this before the interview. I mean, she's got a lot of stuff. She reports right to Bruce, the CEO, and owns all of enterprise clinical quality and, and sort of safety across the board and, and standards. But one of her big jobs within that is rethinking measurement. And, you know, Humana has something that they focus on called bold goals. And they report on that, I believe, annually. And she's kind of rethinking the entire measurement struct from a population health vantage point and getting away from a lot of the process, retrospective type measure things that a lot of things that we do in the healthcare space today, various providers, including CMS, I'm sorry, payers, including CMS, but she's really trying to rethink this problem. And I think it's a really important piece of work. And I also talked about this idea while you're while you're rethinking that, it would be great too to take away a lot of the administrative burden. So one of the biggest issues and in, in some of my background at Premier is we had a huge measurement business in terms of managing it on behalf of you know hundreds of healthcare systems across the country is just the burden associated with it. Why you need somebody like Premier to manage that on your behalf and, and clean the data, cleanse the data numerator, denominator, getting that right for all the different categories of measurements. And then, you know, what does that really do for you? And I think that was our discussion, which is like, we need measurements that start thinking about productivity, thinking about how many days at work somebody has, you know, uh, it seems like an odd health measure, but when you really start breaking down what matters for somebody's health is that they live a good life day to day. And those measures are very different than, oh, you know, did we you know, stop a sepsis protocol two months ago in Ward 4 of Hospital X. So it's a really interesting point that she's making. And she's spending a lot, and Humana's spending a lot of money and a lot of her time's effort rethinking kind of population health measurement kind of, you know, top to bottom. Well, she's got a big job ahead of her, but uh, she's uh, more than up to it, I'm sure. So let's hear this conversation you had with Mona Siddiqui, Senior Vice President of Enterprise Clinical Strategy and Quality at Humana. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. We've got another exciting episode in front of us today. I have a, a good friend that we used to see each other hopping in between events, <laughs> but now I guess we see each other on Zoom. But I could not be more excited to have Mona Siddiqui with us, who is the Senior Vice President of Enterprise Clinical Strategy and Quality at Humana. Mona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. 
Excited to be here. So just to get started, it would be great to learn a little. You have such a unique background. And I'm always intrigued every time I, I go back and look at your background in terms of what you've done. But it'd be great to sort of understand a little bit sort of how you got to Humana and the role that you're in now. And like I say, and I said during the preamble, happy to go as far back as grade school, if you like, or we can go any which way you want with that. But we'd love to understand a little bit more about your background. So clearly, I've had varied interests throughout my life. If we go back, maybe just a little bit with folks probably don't know about me that I've moved a fair bit as a kid growing up and uh, spent some time in Germany and a few other places. This is sort of before the wall came down and just have been exposed to a lot of different backgrounds and people coming in with different thoughts. And I'm sure that's influenced me in, in ways that I probably don't fully appreciate. But I, uh, I love to be at the intersections of different domains. So, you know, in college, I studied philosophy and neuroscience. As an adult, I obviously have the clinical background and then the background in data science and in and, and operations engineering. And love to take on roles where I can solve problems at those intersections. I think that's actually the, the most interesting thing. And I think healthcare needs much more of that. Folks not just coming in with, you know, the box of healthcare and, and, and having stayed in that lane, but people who can bring different skill sets to problem solving. So you really interesting background on the data and informatics side too, in various roles. Where did that interest come from? So I basically threw out my 20-year plan out the window at some point and have really just said, okay, what am I doing right now? And what are the skill sets that I need to, to solve the problems that are in front of me? Always have had a quantitative bent, but didn't have the formal training. And I realized that I I, I needed that to be able to look at problems in a much more rigorous and unbiased way and, and really try to figure out what the set of solutions could be. You know, while I was uh, doing my clinical training, then also decided that I was going to do this training in quantitative quantitative methods, which I felt like could be applied to, again, any, any problem. And it didn't have to be a uh, condition-specific lens. You could evaluate a, a big policy problem. You could evaluate an o- operational problem. And to me, that was really, really appealing. And so that's sort of where where it came from. It was really doing the work, realizing I didn't have a set of skills that I needed, and then going to try and address that. And then we first met, I think, when you were still at HHS. And that role, now, I don't know if I have this right, but were you the first official chief data officer of HHS? I was, I was. And what was that role? And then how did that come about? I remember I remember when I used to be a premier, I remember when the role got created and I went to my policy person, Blair Childs, and I was like, what is this role? Like what, you know, I was in the informatics business as well for a long time. So I was like trying to figure out why would HHS create a role like that? And, and how did you get there? Well, I might just uh, describe the role I had a little bit before that, which was with the, under the Obama administration, uh, a team called the White House Social and Behavioral Sciences Team which was really stood up to say, how do we use insights from behavioral economics to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of large-scale government programs? What you need to be able to do that is access to data at the right time if you want to be able to uh, do those sort of rapid and iterative tests. So before I came to my role at HHS, I was a user of the data or experienced the pain points of not having access to the right information at the right time. So when I came to HHS and one of the first uh, things I was asked to look at was 
how we think about new solutions in the opioid epidemic space. And so what we did is say, look, HHS has an enormous amount of data that is not getting leveraged and not getting connected to data from the Department of Justice, from the Department of Labor, from all of these other places that have a a unique lens into this problem. And if we connect this data, we can have an enormous impact here. As I did that work, you know, we began to surface a lot of the issues around sharing and integration, both from a legal governance, structural, people, software perspectives, you know, up and down. And so, again, in the the course of trying to solve that problem, realized that there was a much broader set of things that we needed to solve for. And there had been conversations around the need to have chief data officers in different parts of the government. And I think it sort of was the confluence of, again, having people realizing that some of these intractable issues really need the right information at the right time. And um, my having had the experience and, and maybe being at the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, was sort of uh, was offered that. Role. And I, I thought, again, there was an, uh, an incredible opportunity to create meaningful and, and lasting impact through doing some work, frankly, that is just not glamorous, right? People don't like to focus on infrastructure issues um, within an organization. How are the pipes working and getting connected? How is that leading to value creation? What does the staffing model look like to support that? And so, you know, we had to sort of create all of that from the ground up. But again, it was it was an incredible experience. And any big highlights there? I mean, you talked a little bit about the opioid use case there within that, but, you know, any sort of success stories during that time that, that, that people may know about or may not know about? Well, you know, we, um, as we sort of connected that data, one of the solutions that was developed through a public-private partnership actually ended up getting scaled on to Google Maps, which is essentially you can go and, and, and track locations across the country that are take-back sites. So we know that oftentimes, Kids get exposed to opioids because they are in their grandparents' cabinets or their parents' cabinets. And we do have a sort of a, a national you know, day every year where you drop off these pills. But um, one of our sort of public-private partnerships led to the collection of this information in one place. We had partnered with Google. Google then sort of took that and, and, and scaled that onto Google Maps. So I think it was a phenomenal example of public-private partnership when you have the right people at the table at the right time. So you went from HHS, and I remember having this discussion with you too, because you were like trying to think about what to do next. And I was like, you can do whatever you want. I was like, you could pick your next spot. You picked Humana. And so how did you get over there? And then sort of what's the current role? And then maybe we'll get into a little bit of details on the Humana organization as such. Yeah, well, I mean, just frankly, I had uh, before government worked at one of the largest health systems at, at Hopkins. And then had spent, you know, time within the government, both in the White House at CMS and then HHS. So when I was thinking about next steps, I thought, okay, you know, maybe going to the pair side would help me in really understanding the impact of a lot of the work that um, I have done on, on, you know, those sides. And I really just deeply believe in the mission that Humana is focused on this path that we're on to becoming a healthcare company and a focus on how we enable more care in home and community-based settings. Fundamentally, I think that's how all of us want to age. It's what we want to enable for our parents and families. And creating that system is really hard. But I think we have some of the core components that allow us to build 
and get to that vision. So for, for me, it was really, you know, I think Humana was making at that time when I was speaking to the team, all of the right, the right moves with um, looking at uh, Kindred, building out our senior focused uh, primary care clinics, the significant focus on SDOH. So it just, it made a ton of sense. And so I've heard a few people from Humana lately call it a healthcare company which I find interesting because, you know, most people in the market, maybe that are an arm's length away or so would say you're a payer, but clearly you've made some moves recently in the not so distant future of also being a clinical delivery arm. And so I'd be curious sort of how you describe Humana as a healthcare company and what kind of its functional and parts are, maybe even talk a little bit about the org structure. I love that you're hearing that from us because it is how we're seeing ourselves. And I think it's an important, it's a really important transition that we are still in the midst of, frankly. But there is this orientation of how do we make sure that the things that we're doing ultimately enable us to improve healthcare outcomes for our members and patients. That's what we increasingly talk about. And how are we building the right programs? What you see from you know, the investments that we're making, whether that's um, care in the home through, through Kindred, or the primary care organization is an expression of, of that vision, right? Which is how do we make sure that we are bringing together the pieces that enable our members to have an integrated set of experiences across their clinical journey? And so we talk a lot about the member's clinical journey and how we are really caring for both their care in the, in the home and community-based settings, but also throughout that journey. Now, obviously, each of these assets are are covering a particular portion of our population, and they're going to continue to grow and and over time uh, cover more and more of our members. And we're continuing to look at how we develop new programs that, uh, again, enable us to meet our members when they're most vulnerable and address their needs. So I think you're going to continue to see much more from Humana when it comes to that ultimate outcome of how do we enable improved healthcare outcomes for our members. We've had a couple of the blues plans on. So one of the bigger ones, Anthem recently, and then before that, Blue Cross Blue Shield Mass. And it's very clear currently on most of their strategies, they are partnering on trying to think about clinical resources rather than owning. But if you look at you know, Humana and some of the other payers, obviously United being the biggest with, with what they're doing with Optum and Optum Care, you guys have a tr- as a strategy, which we'll dive a little bit deeper into next, you know, you've chosen to not only take financial risk and, and deliver and own the financial risk, but also own the clinical risk in certain settings based on a lot of the activities that you've done. Is that is that an accurate statement? I think that that is only, that's part of the strategy. I don't think it's the only approach. I think you know, if, if you see Humana's partnership with entities like Oak Street or Iora, others, right? We are not saying that owning all primary care clinics is the only strategy, right? So you're seeing what we're doing with the primary care organization, but also our partnerships with others in the ecosystem. So I don't see a sort of a single approach. I think that the aim is consistent, right? Which is how do we enable seniors to have a much better experience in these primary care organizations? The approach to getting there is, is multi-pronged. That makes sense. So it's really a great, better edit to what I said, which is your ultimate vision is to fundamentally change how seniors 
sort of get their care experience and you're going to do whatever it takes, whether it's owning certain resources, partnering with certain resources, et cetera, et cetera, on both the, fin- you know, the risk side, the financial risk side, as well as the clinical risk side. And then how, as much as you, know, you can say, like when you think about Humana's business, is it kind of structured by payer type now? Is it structured by delivery? Is it, how does the org kind of sort of structure itself? So obviously what we, the primary care organization is a partnership with financing partners as well. So that is not, in, you know, completely internal um, to Humana. Kindred was a recent acquisition. So we're working on that integration right now. Our Medicare and Medicaid and commercial segments are obviously distinct and they have distinct needs. And so there are a set of services that are obviously shared across those and and, and certain pieces that are obviously unique. And then, you know, I know uh, just because I've been close to it a little bit over the years, Bruce, you all on the team have, have made substantial investments on the digital experience side of the equation. And like bringing Heather Cox on and that whole team thinking about sort of end-to-end experience. How do you think about that from an average member? So if you, if you again, go back to sort of your, your typical archetype or most your archetype, even though I know it's broader, you know, as an MA type of population, you know, how does that digital experience matter to what you're trying to deliver as the overall vision? So I think consumer behaviors are changing as we speak, Keith, right? And I think we've noticed, we've seen that in the past two years that transformation uh, substantially. I think Humana's investments in digital, I think, encompass a few different areas. So I think one would be the information infrastructure. So are we, do we have the right information at the right time to be able to address those needs as they come up? Because there's obviously a fair amount that you can do from a predictive modeling perspective, but being connected in almost real-time ways I think can be really, really powerful. So I would, I would say it's not just about a great app, right, that you're deploying. It is about how are, you, how are you connecting the information infrastructure first? And then how are you under, able to understand based on that, the needs as they arise? And then have a much more informed perspective for how you take a uh, digital approach to addressing that need, if that's appropriate. But also where we're spending some time is thinking about how do we connect the in-person experience with the digital experience? Because it's never really going to be either either or for, for any one of us. And how do we begin to knit that in a much more seamless way? You know, I think part of it is we say that there isn't perhaps as an industry that, you know, the adoption of these tools takes a long time. But I think part of the challenge has been for a lot of organizations that these are deployed in a very siloed way as as point solutions. So I think we are uniquely positioned based on, as you said, the investments that we've made here to really think about a holistic set of experiences and how we create that and how we make these tools so much easier to use that it isn't just about, you know, that we're not just deploying a single thing and then wondering about why we're not getting the engagement that would be needed. I think having a much more connected set of experiences helps us get that adoption as well that we would all want to, that frankly, we would all benefit from. It's an interesting transition right now, right? Where to your point about offline experiences and online experiences and, and how does the infusion of those two start coming together and people get used to this idea of engagement from an analog or a digital, depending on what the need is. 
the other question I guess would be interesting for you guys is, you know, the majority of the trust today sits with healthcare providers and those consumers. And when most of us get that call from the the payer or perceived payer, they don't get returned or the di- or the digital app doesn't get used. I would think that's an interesting hurdle for you guys back to your vision about how do you think about the digital footprint but then how do you also think about this idea that you're on both sides of that coin and how do you build trust in those populations? Is that a big factor? Absolutely. And given my background as a, as a primary care provider, I think we have to care for how what we do builds the builds and supports the provider patient relationship rather than creates that abrasion. So there are, you know, there are structural areas where primary care providers are just not positioned to be able to address some of those patient needs. And having, you know, been in those settings where I have felt like I didn't have the right infrastructure as a as a clinician to be able to give my patient the support that they needed, there are absolutely areas that are causing high cost and poor outcomes for our patients where there really isn't another entity in the in the ecosystem that is positioned to be able to support both sides of that equation, the, the patient and the provider. And I think a pair has to be really smart about what are those pain points for providers and how do we make them a part of the solution. And when we think about creating that end-to-end experience, are, are really caring not just for the member experience, but for the provider experience as well. And any major new initiatives, I was, well, I was doing a little bit of research for this interview, and, and I didn't know much about one of the initiatives author that, that came up in some of the research I came by. I don't know if you want to talk about that or anything else that's new and interesting from the team that, that, that people might want to hear about. I would say, you know, the orientation right now for for Humana is really around how do we enable a better consumer experience and improved healthcare outcomes. A piece that folks may not be aware is that we are actually internally trying to develop new measures of how we measure health outcomes. And for me, that's really, really interesting because as a community, there is so much focus on, on process measures, right? And looking at little pieces of the puzzle rather than thinking about what is ultimately meaningful for our consumers and how are we measuring what matters to them. There's a ton of time actually that that my team is spending on understanding consumer needs and then understanding how we measure what matters and really inform the conversation around measurement and and value rather than being reactive to it. So I do see that as as, um, something really interesting that we're working on right now. And I feel like that maybe because I'm not in the epicenter of it like I was back in the premiere days, but I feel like the measurement movement has been muted as of late a bit. And maybe that's just because the change administrations over the last number of administrations. But, you know, what's your take on that? Because to your point, I think, you know, you guys had the bold gold initiative and a bunch of other things on the population health front. Do you think the commercial folks like yourself and others or or managed government providers could potentially reimagine that? I assume that's where you're going with it. You know, we spend a lot of time at Premier thinking about what do population health measures look like? Is it really about, you know, days at work and productivity, not to your point about, you know, in the rear process, healthcare centric measures. I'm curious sort of how you think about that. Well, obviously value-based care is all about being oriented to the right set of outcomes. So I think this is an incredibly important piece for us to work on. 
And frankly, we can move much faster than my former you know, government uh, colleagues can. So I do think that there's an opportunity for us to say, how do we take all the information that we have access to, all the learnings that we have had as an enterprise, and this explicit orientation that we have towards uh, being more consumer-centric and measure what matters to consumers. Now, that is really hard. It is hard to first make sure that you are oriented towards the right things. And then you are, you know, that you have access to the right information that translates clinical concepts into outcomes that are trackable and that you can operationalize. But it's a muscle that I think organizations need to build. Otherwise, we will continue to stay and and make sort of these incremental gains um, based on process measures that ultimately aren't meaningful for us to really move the needle in, in the ways that I think we all want to see happen. And really, I think, you know, as you may recall a while back, Anthem tried to make a really broad wellness movement on measurement front a number of years ago, ton. And then there was like this blowback from all the providers going, ah, I do not need more burden on the measurement front. Is the thought pattern also then to turn around wherever you end up on the measures and make it extremely easy for people to manage that overall burden, if you want to call it that, on you know managing additional things, given given all the stuff that comes from the government, as you know better than I do. Any thoughts around, around the sort of administrative burden side of measurement? I think parsimonious metrics that are intuitive and easily able to be implemented is where we should be focused on more is not better, you know, better is better. And I think we need to need to really rethink, are we measuring the right set of things? And so this has been an interesting journey for us as we've looked at really understanding what our consumers want, gaps that they're seeing, not just from us, but from pairs across the board, and that there is an opportunity based on what they want and what they're seeing that we can help address through this work. Yeah, I think you're dead on. And it's, it's, again, you know better than I do, it is tough sledding work. It is work that's slow and, and sort of going through the weeds on it because of the low level of details. Here's what else it, it lets us do, which is to say, okay, if this is what matters and this is how we're performing, now what are the programs that we need to go and develop internally, right, that help us to meet those metrics that we are, we are anchored to as an organization, and here's where we may not be meeting the mark and, and programs that we may need to be developing more proactively. So these aren't just things that we sort of look at and, and, and track independently, but how does this help us in thinking about the ways in which we need to look at benefit redesign and how we contract differently with providers? What's the clinical capability that we need that we don't have? And do we you know, build that or, or do we partner with somebody on that? It is a very connected conversation in, in terms of all the levers that we have as a pair and, and frankly, which my team looks at. Do we address this problem now based on a, and do we need a more of a value-based care strategy here or do we need to go and, and, and have a clinical partnership here with, with another organization? And it kind of hits to your first point that we kicked off the interview with, which is this idea of a system, this thought pattern, right? So if you, you've got to think about this from a system angle rather than a minute process angle, which we've done for so many decades in this country in healthcare. But I think you guys are dead on it. No, and it's uh, it makes it really interesting, right? Because part of what we have is a multiple levers available to us, right? So when we see a problem, we can say, you know, do we need to be thinking about how 
a program in our home organization is currently designed and how do we modify that? How could we learn in deploying a particular program within one of our assets that then helps us be more informed about how we partner with others in the ecosystem? So having this sort of connected ecosystem within Humana helps us, I think, in understanding what excellence looks like and how we get into a position of pitching the right set of solutions rather than being pitched to and not having a perspective on what excellence looks like. That's great. And totally applaud you guys pushing on that and you in particular in your group because it's definitely needed. Sort of as we kind of culminate towards the tail end of this discussion and and you think about the landscape a little bit broader over the next decade, it feels like there's a lot of momentum in the market of strategies like Humana's, which, you know, can you put together for certain populations the right level of taking on the financial risk and taking on clinical delivery, whether it's owned, partnered, whatever have you. But do you feel like the next big push for most payers or or payer-like entities is going to be even more government business? It feels like most of you know, payers are really trying to look for managed government business. And you start thinking about what's happening in the Medicaid market, the duals market. What's your vantage point there in terms of what the next kind of horizon is for a lot of folks that, that look and feel like Humana? So I, I think the chassis of a Medicare Advantage program can be applied to serve many different populations and some of the most vulnerable populations. And, and that's why you see us making the moves that we are within Medicaid, as well as, and I think across the industry, within the duals population as well. There's a lot that we've learned through how we manage uh, population health, how we leverage um, our investments in SDOH, which are become even more important for the duals population, and how, again, we connect those set of assets together to really provide the right care at the right time. So I I think as an industry, that is where we'll see some movement. And I think that competition is going to be really healthy ultimately for consumers, right? I think uh, healthcare moves really slowly and we need to pick up the pace and and meet the consumer needs and and stop sort of stop the the spin across uh, that we've seen where it's just not consumer centric. So my hope is that 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 uh, that competition actually will will elevate ultimately the the solutions that are needed to address some of the most um, pressing problems. And then on that front, so as you evolve and and the industry evolves, and you know we've all been sitting back watching the amount of money that's gone into this space lately and creating new companies and and new technologies. My last question, sort of like when when you think about the innovation side of the business and a lot of the companies, how can they best work with Humana? Like, where are the areas of need that you know you guys won't be doing it organically, but you'll be partnering? Humana's got a long track record of partnering with a lot of early stage companies, which is terrific. But you know, when you think about where you are today, where you're going in the future, how should people think about the key areas that that may be interesting for for folks to to work with Humana in? I think the the key sort of Clinical areas are, are probably not a surprise for anybody. We need to address the needs of our sickest members who have multiple chronic conditions. I think we, as an industry, need to think about how we bring the caregivers more into the conversation and how we support not just the individuals, but the, but the families. I think solutions that enable a more connected and integrated experience of care in the home and community-based settings. I think those are particularly interesting. And I think overall, how do we become much more proactive 
in reaching out to our members at the right time to deliver the, the care that they need and the support that they need. So uh, that, that may be um, a very broad uh, set, set of things, but I think the, the shift of care into home and commu- community-based settings, being more proactive and, and managing complex populations are all places that I think it would be great to, for Humana to continue to partner with others in the ecosystem. I think that's spot on. And we're seeing so much of the early effort and a lot of new companies coming up in that area. So it's, it's definitely exciting. Well, this has been great, Mona. I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Any last closing thoughts before we sign off? No, I appreciate the, the chance to reflect a little bit. It's been uh, two years since I joined Humana, all uh, mostly during the, the pandemic. So um, it's nice to sort of reflect on two um, really interesting years for all of us in the industry. And um, I'm excited for, I think, what Humana can really accomplish and looking forward to really partnering with with uh, uh, friends in the space to move the needle. Good. Well, maybe we can actually get off of Zoom one of these days and start seeing each other again at various events. So it'd be that good. That would be awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you. All right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can find Keith Figlioli on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. I'm Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Join us next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you. Mm-hmm.